I, um, um, yesterday, I went to Utica Square, and I know most of you are not allowed to go there, because it's like for the bougie people in town, you know, it's for the other campus, you know, the, that, uh, the wealthy people on campus, but uh, we were from out of town, so we didn't know any better, and uh, we got sticker shock at everything that's not for sale at Utica Square, and uh, uh, we went and ate there, uh, Alex and Meredith told us that there's a restaurant there that has really good French onion soup, and since it was so cold yesterday, we felt like French onion soup would be appropriate, and we headed over there, and afterwards we um, stumbled into a department store, and as soon as we walked in uh, to the department store, I, um, I saw uh, the perfume counter, and right in the front uh, was this perfume that I instantly noticed when I saw it. And I walked over there, and I grabbed the perfume, and I sprayed it on my arm. And I turned around, and the lady that was working the perfume counter was staring at me. And I think she was thinking uh, something that I, I, I instantly recognized because it's happened before. She was thinking, like, that is not for men, you know? And, and that is not even for women. That is for, like, really, really, really old women. It's one of the older perfumes that used to be around. And as soon as I sprayed it, she was about to say something, and my wife spoke up for me. She said, that's the perfume his mom used to wear. And she instantly went from, like, a correction to, like, endearment. And, um, and, and my wife looked at the, the lady that was working behind the counter, and, and she, said, um, she said, yeah, but he always, whenever he sees Tresor, that's the name of the perfume, whenever he sees it, he always goes up and sprays it on his arm. That way... He can smell what his mom used to smell like. And she got, she got really, really kind of uh, soft for a second. She didn't give me a discount, but still, she got really <laughs> soft for a second. And um, for the rest of the day, I would just, I would be like at the other store, and I would just put my arm beside my nose, and I would just get a whiff. And um, my heart would turn towards heaven. And some of you know what I mean when I say that. You've walked into a house, and it smelled like your grandmother's biscuits, <laughs> or you walked over into a place and you saw something and it reminded you of someone that um, you're going to get to see one day in heaven again. And it got me thinking this morning about how heaven is going to be full of people that I love, that I'll get to see, and people that I've yet to meet, but I already love. <laughs> and I don't know who you really want to meet in heaven. I don't know who you think about. And when you think about them, you think about someone that you know that you can't wait to spend eternity with and who you think about that you know as an individual that you want to one day get to meet. And when I think about biblical characters that I want to meet one day, I think John would probably be on the top of the Bible list past Jesus. I can't wait to get to heaven and, and meet Jesus one day in person. I think he's... Um, He's going to look very different than most of you think. If you're wondering what Jesus looks like, I'm from Iran. He's going to look a lot like me. All right, I just want to say that to you for free. All right, but, uh, and uh, he's not some white dude who's a Republican who's always on Fox News. He's more like my people. Just, that's for free. But I think John is going to be such an amazing person to spend an afternoon with. I really like John because he breaks the mold. I'm, I'm a weirdo, and I think John is a bit of a weirdo. And when I read the synoptic gospels, you know, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, I see how they all kind of get in line. And then I read John and see how John kind of bucks the system. I, I think one of my favorite things about John is that um, he is such an attorney at heart. You know, John, um, in the book of John, 
is so meta. And when I, when I say that, um, he is so about the fourth wall. Like um, in the book of John, for example, there are more there are more red-letter words than all the other Gospels. There are more words strictly from Jesus than all the other Gospels, yet he tells per capita less stories than all the other Gospels. And what I love about that is that John is just a guy who loves nuance. All the other, you know, Gospels uh, and the Synoptic Gospels just kind of tell a story, and then you see the red-letter words, the words of Jesus in the story, but John decides, I'm going to cherry-pick seven, eight stories, and I'm going to go deeper into those stories. And he does so um, with an attempt to build a case so that we come to a conclusion. As a matter of fact, in the book of John, uh, he goes ahead and tells us that he recognizes that the story that he's telling is being read by outsiders and that he's building his case like an attorney. He's presenting evidence so that by the end of, of uh, his, his evidence after evidence after evidence being presented to you, you come to this, this conclusion that Jesus, in fact, is guilty without a shadow of a doubt. That as the jury, you're left with no other, right, conclusion than to say, this must be who he claims to be, God. And in John 20, you actually see that. Um, it, it's a weird way to put it, but he is, um, he's breaking the fourth wall. You know how like uh, when you watch The Office, anybody watch The Office? Yeah. You know how when you watch The Office, there are just moments where there is supposed to be a reality show, right? Like they're just kind of in this office with the cameras and, and they break the fourth wall when like Jim looks at the camera and like goes, can you believe this is happening? And, and that's the fourth wall. And John does that in, in the book of John. He, he builds his case and as he's building his case, very nuanced and telling the great details of a story. Um, he's building it, and occasionally he comes up for air, and he says, and I, I tell you this so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah. Uh, my favorite uh, version of this is uh, in, in the Norman Rockwell painting, uh, the Thanksgiving painting, you know, that, that uh, is just uh, a legend. It's an iconic vision. Can, can we put that up? I asked the team just to put that up. Uh, this painting right here is so interesting. Uh, everybody recognizes this, right, as one of the great Americana you know, pictures that we just see and we just see the warmth of it all. But have you ever noticed the creepy guy in the far corner bottom to the right? <laughs> Maybe all your life you've seen this before, but you've never noticed the guy in the corner. And what he's doing in the corner is he's looking right back at us to say, I know you're looking in. And John does that in the book of John. John, in the book of John, continues to, to come back up for air and he goes, I know that thousands of years later, right, 1,984 years later, like that's us today, that you're going to peek in. And as you peek in, I want you to understand that outsiders are listening in. Outsiders are looking in. And, and I want you to know that I know you're looking in, and I want you to come to the same conclusion that I did, that Jesus truly is the Messiah. And in the book of John, John loves the number seven, <laughs> And he decides that he's going to present seven different miracles. And all of the miracles are not about the miracle as much as about the one who did the work of the miracles. So that after sign after sign after sign, he would point that Jesus is, in fact, the Messiah. That's the purpose of a miracle, by the way. The purpose of a miracle was never about the miracle, but the miracle worker who performed the miracle. 
The purpose of a miracle is never about the thing that happens, but the thing that happens being an arrow to the one who made it happen. And John does that in a tremendous way in the book of John. The first time that, that he gives us a miracle in the book of John, it is in, on paper a pretty insignificant little moment. The very first miracle in the book of John is this miracle where Jesus goes to a wedding, and during a wedding, they run out of wine, and when they run out of wine, Jesus comes in as the ultimate party planner, right? As the ultimate person who comes in as the caterer, and he says, you know what? You run out of wine, but I'm going to make sure that this party keeps happening. I mean, he just turns water into wine, and the party keeps popping, (laughs) y'all. And you got to give it this. You got to give it that, that I know it's symbolic and, and, and represents later on to the crescendo of the cross and the resurrection, but, but you got to give it what it is. It's, it's not a traumatic moment. I mean, it might be an embarrassing moment, but it's not a traumatic moment where at the end of a party, you know, they look back and go about halfway through, we were running out of wine, but then something miraculous happened. And then it was an all-you-can-drink <laughs> feast. And if you left a party and they ran out of food early, or if you left a party and they ran out of wine early, that certainly wouldn't be a life-changing thing for you, right? But that's the first miracle that he does. And then the second miracle, the second miracle, the one we're going to look at today, is completely the opposite. It is about as traumatic of a situation as it can get. If the first one is basically him making sure they don't run out of wine at a wedding, and that feels to me not traumatic at all, this one that we're going to look at today has all everything on amp, everything on full tilt, everything completely cranked up because, and and maybe this is just more personal for me because I'm a dad, this is about not just someone needing a physical miracle, but someone that you love that's your child needing it. Every person in this room who's a dad, where are you at, dads? Every person here in this room who's a mom, where you at, moms, knows what I mean when I say it is one thing if you're hurting. It's one thing if the doctor says that bump that you've been concerned about, I'm concerned about. We need to do some biops. We need to do some testing. We need to come back a few more times. That lump is back. Every person in this room knows what I'm talking about. But it is bad news. It is bad, bad, bad conclusions when you're hurting, but it's a whole other thing when your kid is hurting. It's a whole other thing when it's your little girl, when it's your little boy. It's one thing if you're having restless nights. It's a whole other thing when all of a sudden your little girl can't sleep at night and you're sitting beside their bed and you know all the money in the world, all the doctors that you know, all the relationships that you can broker, none of them can help your own child. Every parent knows it is one thing if it's you. It's a whole other thing if it's your little boy. And this is one of those kind of moments. And the story that we're about to read gets about as traumatic as you can get because it's about a nobleman. It's about a man who has a lot of power, a lot of posture, a lot of, you know, just um, people that he can kind of broker relationships with. But he's got a son, and his son is sick. His son is headed towards death, and he is on full alert, full desperation mode, leaning in, needing someone to help. And that's the urgency that this story is obviously loaded up with. And so if we could, uh, just out of respect from God's word, let's stand together and let's read this story in John 4, 43. So he, the he being Jesus, one day came again to Canada in Galilee where he had just turned water into wine. And at Capernaum, there was an official whose son was ill. When this man, when the official heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal 
his son. For he was at the point of death. So Jesus says to him, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. And the official says back to him, sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus says to him, go, your son will live. And the man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went away on his way. And as he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them the hour when he began to get better. And they said to him, yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. And the father knew at that moment that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, your son will live the day before, right? And he himself believed and all his household as well. This was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. Man, may God bless his word. You may have a seat. And so it's an interesting story. You've got a father whose son is in urgent need of a miracle. And the father finds out that Jesus, who had performed a miracle earlier in the day, which seemed kind of earlier, you know, in the same region, is in the same region again. And so he comes with urgency to Jesus. And when he comes to Jesus, he says, look, I've got a son who needs healing. Can you help him? And then Jesus, in original language, doesn't like necessarily point straight to him, but to all of them and says, so many of you keep coming to me because you want miracles, but you don't understand that the miracles have a bigger purpose for them. But yet at the same time, he turns around and he loves them just in that moment of desperation. And he says, go home, your son is healed. And the man begins to head home. And even though it's about a seven hour trip home, he's taking his time to get home. And the next day, they come to him, his servants come to the, old, to the centurion man, to the nobleman, and they say, look, um, your son is well. We, we thought you'd want to know. And he says, when did my son begin to get well? And he realizes that his son immediately turned for the better at the same moment that the day before Jesus had said, go home, your son is better. And he goes home from there. And at that moment, he begins to, I'm going to presume here, share what he had experienced. And not only does he all of a sudden believe in Jesus, but his entire family converts and believes in Jesus. And what we see in this story, and this is what I want to point out to you today. What we see in this story is the progressions of faith that God sometimes uses in the life of an individual to let them go from believing in God's works to believing in God's words to believing that God is the word. And so if you're taking notes, this is the three points that I want us to camp down on today. There are times, point number one, there are times when God allows the circumstances of our lives and sometimes he will bless us with tragedy. Sometimes he'll bless us with desperation. There are times when God will use the circumstances of our life to wake us up from our, you know, inability to be able to solve it on our own and to lean in in desperation for someone who can do the work that we ourselves cannot do. So, so there are times when, when in the beginning of our faith, God grabs our attention by having us believe in his works. You know, um, when you look back at your faith, it might have not been that you needed a miracle, but it might have been that you saw a miracle in the life of somebody else 
maybe a next door neighbor that was converted, maybe a coworker that was working, and then you saw it work out. You saw somebody working out their salvation with fear and trembling, and it was their testimony that made you begin to take faith seriously. You saw somebody have something that, that, that you didn't have. You, you saw how this guy's marriage was in shambles and all of a sudden his marriage was restored and you're going, something happened there. I see the marriage being restored and, and my marriage needs to be restored and we've tried to fix it with money and we've tried to fix it with vacation and we've tried to fix it with things that are very symptomatic but, but something in the root is being fixed in this person and so you saw the work of the Holy Spirit in somebody and it drew you to go, well, maybe we ought to visit once in a while this church that they're going to or maybe we ought to go to their community group and see what the secret sauce is all about. And there are times in our lives when God will use a wonder-working power to get our attention. Maybe it's in our own life. Maybe it's in someone else's life that we witness. And God will sometimes use his work to get our attention. And I look back at my life, and I can see how when I was 18 years old, I met some Christians and they seemed to have a joy that I didn't have. They seemed to have a peace that I didn't have. They seemed to have something that was missing in my life. And it made me go, whatever they got, I want. And they made me lean in. And there are times in our lives when God will do that to get us to believe in his work. But it's not enough. It's not enough to simply believe in the works of God. How many of you believe that God actually performed Jesus actually healed this is not folklore this is an actual historical event Jesus actually healed the nobleman's son how many of you believe that I, I believe he did it too but how many of you believe that he didn't just do that 2,000 years ago that he's still in the working business God is still working today he's still active today it, it, just the thing is though it, it, it's a good place to begin to believe that God is at work that God is still able to work that God is still you know a, 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 absolutely today in the miracle working business but i just want to tell you that's a good place to start but that's never going to bring you salvation it is one thing to believe in his works and it is to be applauded that you believe in his works but it is not enough to believe simply in his works and so the first time the nobleman comes he's believing in his works he says look i know from the evidence of past that, that, that you turn water into wine and so maybe you can turn sick into healed and so can you do that and so he believes in his works and jesus says to him it's got to be so much more than that but i'll meet you where you are you are healed your son is healed. But then he goes, if you look at the second time that word work comes, I mean, believe comes in, he goes from believing in Jesus and his works to believing Jesus and his words. Taking somebody at their words is a progressive step further up from just believing in the works, but it's still not enough. You know, um, the best way I can illustrate what it looks like for you to believe in somebody's words, to take them at their word, is to believe that uh, they're trustworthy. <laughs> you know, uh, anybody here uh, in the uh, construction world, anybody here, and I know all campuses are watching here, but whatever campus you're at, uh, what do you do, brother, in the front row? I'm sorry, you're an electrician? Cool. I I've got a really good electrician. We've been in construction world in, in Nashville where we live, and I've got a really good electrician. As a matter of fact, I just trust him. He's, he's given me no reason 
to not take him at his word. So uh, I'll tell my electrician, hey, uh, we need this put in. And then he, he basically comes back, and I, I'm not home when he does his work. And he can tell me it's three hours of work. He can tell me it's one hour. I, I actually don't even, like, I just take him at his word. I have a, I have a trustworthy electrician. You, you seem like a good one, too. I wish you lived in my town. I'd hire you. All right, you seem even more trust. All right, sitting in the front row of a church. Come on, bro. All right, so that's awesome. All right, so, and whatever I give you tides back to my best friend's church. This is amazing. 10%. This is, come on. Are you kidding? But anyway, so, so I just take my electrician at his word. I, I have a guy who does a lot of carpentry work for us. We love Wayne. Wayne has almost become like a, a bit of a friend, and, and we just take him at his word. He literally, when he sends us a receipt, is pencil sketched on the back of another receipt, <laughs> and we just take him at his word. We, we just believe that when he goes out to Lowe's on our behalf and he buys stuff, that he's not like throwing in a few more stuff for himself. We've never even seen a receipt. We take him at his word. And so it's one thing to believe in his work, which is his competency, as an electrician, it's another thing to believe in his word, which is that he's trustworthy, that he's not cheating us. But let me tell you what I'm not doing with my electrician. I'm not giving him the deed to the house and say, it's yours. So it's one thing to believe in his competency. It's another thing to believe in his trustworthiness. It's a whole other thing to surrender everything over to him. And so Jesus in this story begins in the progression of faith with, hey, do you believe me in my works? And then he, he tells the young, he tells the, the, the nobleman, you know what? Your son is healed. And I know normally we say seeing is believing, but in this case, believing is seeing. He doesn't see that his son is healed, but he believes to the point where he's not even urgently trying to get back home. He's like, if you said it, it's as good as done. And he's taking his time to get to home. And the next day, somebody comes to him and says, hey, your son is healed. And he says, when was it? And then he's told that it was at the exact same moment that the promise was given, the word was given. And at that moment, there is that progression of faith where he goes from believing in his works to believing in his word to, don't miss this, believing he is the word. And that is saving faith. That is saving faith. And the beauty of God is that God will meet us where we are. And sometimes he'll believe, he'll work with us. And sometimes he'll become consistent enough where he becomes trustworthy. And as good as that is, that's a great place to start and it's a great place to progress. But we got to punch through. <laughs> There's got to be that third moment we see where we don't just believe that he is who he says he is, we receive the power of the gospel. It's like that old sentence, you can believe in soap. Anybody believe in soap, but still be dirty? <laughs> you got to actually take a shower. You got to actually apply the soap. And in this story, we see the progressions of faith in the life of an individual. Now, the reason that's so important maybe for me is because when I've been studying this text and I've been looking at it as just a miracle in the life of someone 2,000 years ago, it begins to uncloudy for me the progressions of what my father has been going through for the past 15 years of his life. And I'm just going to get super, super, super gut level honest with you and tell you that I have really struggled in the way that the ups and downs of my father's faith, my, my biological father's faith, has gone in the last 10 years of my life. 
When I was 18 years old, a church showed up at my house. And I say showed up at my house, like 18 teenagers showed up at my house on a Monday night. They called it visitation. We called it harassment. And 18 Christians showed up at my house on a Monday night, and they knocked on my door after I went to church for the first time on a Sunday. And they came in, and three hours later, they were still at my house, and they shared the gospel with me. The next Monday, they came back again and shared the gospel with me. The next Monday, they came back again and shared the gospel with me. I'm just telling you, we were the Iranians, but we got terrorized by a youth group, all right, a Southern Baptist youth group. And every Monday, we're like, the Christians are coming, the Christians are coming. And they came to our house, and for eight Monday nights in a row, I heard about the wonder-working power of God. I heard that God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that if I believed in him, I would not perish but have eternal life. The next week, lock and load. I heard Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by him. The next week, lock and load. He who knew no sin became sin so that you could become the righteousness of God. Different Bible verses all pointing to the same person. Jesus is your answer for everything that's broken in your life. And for eight weeks in a row, I heard the gospel. And for eight weeks in a row, I made up excuses why I didn't want to receive Jesus. And, and you know what? Every time they would come to my house, they would say, we'll see you. We'll come, we're coming to get you. And on, when, on Monday nights, they would come to my house. And on Sunday morning, somebody would drive over and they would drag me to their church. And I say drag me, but I wanted to go. And one night I was sitting there at their church on a Sunday night. And the preacher preached the gospel. And I knew at that moment that I needed God. And I went Past in the progressions of faith. It was an eight-week progression of faith, right? I went past the moment of believing and trusting Jesus at his word, and I made the, the profession of faith that Jesus is the word, that he is my savior, and I got saved when I was 18. And I'll, I, I got to tell you, it was an amazing night, but it was a clash, clash at the same time. I mean, I got saved, and the first person I said out loud I just became a Christian to was my father. I got saved really late at night in my house. The preacher had preached the gospel. I tried to get away from the gospel. I went home and realized God's not contained in church buildings with steeples. His spirit is everywhere. And then I got saved at my house, and my parents were out of town. They came into the house. My mom and dad heard me crying in my bedroom. I, they, walked, they opened up the bedroom. I, I was crying. I looked up. The first person I ever professed my faith to was my dad. I said, I became a Christian. I gave my life to Jesus tonight. And my parents were never devout as Muslims until that moment. <laughs> my father looked at me and he goes, you cannot be a Christian, we're Muslims. And I was like, we are? <laughs> and it was his pride more than anything else. I mean, he had lost his heritage, he had lost his pedigree, he had lost so much when he escaped from Iran when I was nine years old and came, and now because of his prodigal son, he had lost his faith. And I think they thought it's just a stage in my life. They thought, you know, it's okay, he's got a tennis racket. And all the lessons and the tennis camps that never panned out to anything. He's got a, you know, he wanted to be Andre Agassi and it never panned out. He's got a surfboard even though we live four hours away from any body of water. He's got a guitar because he wanted to be Eddie Van Halen for about 15 minutes. He'll just get a Bible and it'll just be one more thing on a shelf. But they didn't realize when you truly, truly not just believe in his works, not just believe in his word, but believe he is the word. When you truly get saved, it's not like a cold that you catch and it goes away. It's a whole new you, right? And when they, when they found out this was real, the night that I went to get baptized at my church, because they really wanted to baptize me. I don't know if they got extra credit for Duncan Middle Eastern people. I don't know what, but they really wanted to baptize. The night that I went to get baptized was the night that it all came to head. Because a few weeks after I got saved, the night that I got baptized was the night where I came home. And literally, my mom and dad were standing there. And they said, did you get baptized? I said, yes. And they said, you're no longer our son. And they kicked me out of the house. And I remember... 
moving out of my house as a baby Christian and moving in with six guys that lived in a one-bedroom apartment. <laughs> and I'd never been more broke in my life, and I'd never been more rich at the same time. And five months after I was a Christian, five months after I was a Christian, one night my sister called me on the phone weeping, and through campus crusade on her campus, she was older than me, God had saved my sister. And if you told me the five months before that one day someone else in my family would have come to know the Lord, I would have said, you don't know my family, especially my sister. She's really, really stubborn. She's probably the most Muslim of the whole family. But you know what? God was like, I got this. And five months after I got saved, my sister got saved. Five months after that, one night my mom calls me on the phone, screaming on the phone, like literally screaming on the phone. Tonight I become Christian. I'm like, why are you yelling? She's like, I want your father to hear because he's not kicking me nowhere. This is my house. That's how she wrote. <laughs> so she might have worn some old lady perfume, but I'm going to tell you right now. Whoosh, she had a little whip going on, man. My mom wasn't afraid of nobody. And my mom got saved. And then five months after that, my brother Benjamin got saved. And I thought God was on this five-month clock. I thought God is saving people in my family every five months. This is like a Canadian six-month plan or something. You know, this is amazing. And, and you know what? My mom, buddy, my mom was going after my dad. My mom was putting Bible verses in his food, in his Rogaine, everything. <laughs> and she just relentlessly kept sharing the gospel, sharing the gospel, sharing the gospel. Because she believed not just in his works. She'd seen his works. She believed not just in his words. She believed he was the word. And she just kept sharing the gospel with my dad, sharing the gospel. And my dad just kept getting angrier and angrier and angrier. And two and a half years passed. Two and a half years of my dad's pride just getting himself more and more mad about everything that was happening. And one day my mom called me. I lived out of town by this time. And Two and a half years later, my mom called me and she said, hey, um, I went to the doctor today and I need you to come home. Uh, this might be our last goodbye. I went to the doctor today and I'm going to need major open heart surgery. I talked to my dad. He said, yeah, they, we, we didn't want to tell you this, but we've been in, in and out of the hospital for the last few days. The last week, actually, it's just been crazy. Um, you need to come home. So I go home and... Um, I, uh, I remember we're in the hospital, and it's the morning before the surgery, and um, it's crazy. Like, my, my sister's there, my brother Benji's there, and um, my mom's on this hospital bed. My dad's there, and um, we're all kind of like uh, trying not to say the word goodbye. And they're telling us that this is going to be major bypass, valve replacement, all of these things, right? And um, all of a sudden, like, three minutes before my mom's about to be taken out of the room for the surgery. These like five pastors show up. I had told them to pray for her. I had not, I'd forgotten to tell them, don't come over. <laughs> yeah. And um, they show up and they're like, let's pray. And they meant well, but like they didn't know the nuance of the moment. And they start praying for my mom. And as they start praying for my mom, my dad's embarrassed by these people praying in Jesus' name. So he starts making fun of the prayer during the prayer. He's like saying things like, look, he's, he's, he's doing commentary on people's prayers. And so my mom interrupts the prayer. She goes, excuse me. And she just starts ripping into my dad. And I'm not kidding. It is like my big fat Greek open heart surgery. I mean, it is just like crazy. They're having a fight. 
like two minutes before my mom's about to be taken on. I'm just like, it's so drama in my, just pray for me. All right, anyway, so the nurse comes in. She's like, you people are crazy. Like, are you having a fight? And so my dad's mad. My mom's mad. The nurse is like, we're just going to go ahead and get you out of here. They come and they, they kind of roll my mom out. And um, my dad's looking at me. By this time, by the way, these pastors are gone. They're like, bye. You know, they're left. And so um, we, start, we start walking down with her down this hallway. And as we're walking down this hallway, um, my dad's about 15, 20 steps away from us because they just had a fight. And so me and my sister and my brother Benji, we're just kind of walking. And we get to this end of the hallway where they're about to take my mom on the other side. And there are these two doors there. And the... Um, the door says uh, authorized personnel beyond this point or whatever. And so um, we know we're not allowed on the other side. So I look at my mom and I'm like, let, let me pray for you one more time. And I pray for my mom. And they roll my mom on the other side and the doors close. And um, my sister looks at me and she says, well, you weren't here last week, but I need to tell you something. She said, uh, last week when they took mom on the other side, about 30 minutes, 20 minutes after they took mom on the other side, these doors busted open and they had to rush in and I rushed in with them even though I wasn't supposed to and, and down that hallway was the room that they had put her in and she said look, mom flatlined, they, they did this angioplasty and when they injected the dye into her heart, her heart was so weak that she flatlined and they had to rush in and electrocute her, like shock her to barely bring her back and we didn't want to tell you this but we, that's why we told you, you need to come to Simon and she's telling me this she goes, we just need to pray that, uh, that that doesn't happen again. I said, how do we know if it's going to happen again? She goes, well, when the doors busted open, there was a recessed light right outside of the room where she was, and that light was blinking, and so that's where they knew where to rush in to, to electrocute and shock mom and bring her back. And I said, okay. She goes, just pray for that red light not to come on. She goes, we'll know if it's going to happen again. And so we're standing there, and we're just kind of praying, and um, about 15, 20 minutes passes, and uh, by this time, my dad's kind of slowly inching closer to us, you know, and all of a sudden I hear, no, and I look, and that door is busting open, and people are coming, like people are rushing in, and that light's on again, and it's blinking, and so we beat the people to the door. I mean, I, I know we're not supposed to be there, but we just run. Me, my dad, my sister, we just run to the other side of the door, and they run into that, they, the, the paramedics and stuff, they go into the, or the people, uh, nurses and everything, they walk in, I mean, they rush into the door, the door closes, and uh, that light's on and it's blinking, and, and my sister is just panicked. She's just going, God, please don't do this. Please don't take mom away. Please, God. And so I just hit both knees on the floor, and I just put my hands on the door, and I'm just going, God, I, I didn't even say goodbye. Please just don't take mom away. God, please just give us at least a little more time with her. Please, God. And that light's on and it's blinking, and then all of a sudden, I feel like a hand, like a physical hand on me. And I look up, and my prideful father was on one knee. And he puts his hand on my shoulder, and my dad just goes, Jesus, please, please, Jesus, please. And the second my dad said out loud the name of Jesus, I looked up, and that light just stopped blinking. Fast forward two weeks later, everything's good. We had some complications, but now two weeks later, mom's getting to go home. And we're, um, we're in the hospital. Yeah. And um, mom's getting ready. And... Uh, I looked at my mom and I said, hey, mom, you know, about two weeks ago when, when we lost you again for the second time, when you flatlined for the second time, I said, guess who was yelling out the name of Jesus all of a sudden? And my dad's bald head starts turning red, you know, and uh, she goes, really? I said, yeah. I said, dad was yelling out the name of Jesus. And my mom 
looks at my dad and she goes, so now you believe in Jesus? And my dad said, yes. <laughs> no joy. Just like pure, like, yes, you know. Yes, but I reserve the right to not be happy about it. Yeah, that's how I felt. And my mom says, so now you will go to church with us? And my dad goes, yes. <laughs> I, I want to be dragged, but I will go. And my sister looked at my dad, and I'll never forget it. My sister just looked at my dad, and she goes, I'm so glad you believe Jesus is real. That's progressive faith. He saw the work, so he took the word. He said the word, Jesus, please, Jesus, please. And then it happened. But my sister looked at my dad and she goes, I'm so glad you believe he's real, but it's not enough. She said, Dad, there's like two open heart surgeries that need to happen with this family. She goes, Dad, you need to ask Jesus to come into your heart, to come into your life. And my dad, right there in that moment, walked over, pride aside, grabbed my mom's hand, grabbed my hand, grabbed my sister's hand, and he asked Christ to come into his life. And we saw my dad come to Christ. And um, I saw the progressions of faith. I saw pride strip away, fear strip away, religion gone wrong strip away, cultural differences strip away. And it started with like, I need, a, I need you to do something for me, treating him like he's contract labor. Can you come fix something that I can't fix on my own? To believing in who he says he is, to receiving him as Savior. But I got to tell you, it hasn't gone well since. It hasn't. And I'd love to tell you that my dad came to Christ, and then since then he's now been leading a Bible study and Every Tuesday morning, he leads three men in prison ministry to the Lord. My dad right now is so angry with God because my mom died. A couple of years later, he prayed just as loudly, if not even more, and it didn't take because every one of these miracles don't stick. They don't. The nobleman's son that got healed is not alive today. Lazarus isn't going to somebody's church today. The water that got turned into wine isn't like this never-ending wine at a winery somewhere. Every single miracle that Jesus ever performed had an expiration date. Only eternal miracle, salvation miracle, is eternal, is forever. And my dad begged God for my, for my mom to be healed the second time around, but it didn't happen. He begged God for my brother Benji when cancer came into his life to be healed, but it didn't happen. And if you talk to my dad today, can I just say this? There were progressions of faith, but there have definitely been some regressions of faith. And maybe as I'm telling you this, a lot of people like wiping a lot of eyes this morning know what I'm talking about. Maybe this is you. You've had progressions of faith, but you've also had a lot of regressions of faith. Or maybe you know somebody in your life that you go, man, I remember when they were so intimate with God. They loved God. I remember where, where they were just so growing in their faith and I saw not just them cross the threshold of saving faith but like growing and replicating and leading others and and now they're so prodigal now there's no evidence anybody know this is personal to you 
and I want to say something to you. I want, I want to tell you that there can be progressions of faith and there can be regressions of faith, but you're never going to lose what was given to you as a gift. There could be someone in your life like my dad who doesn't have the victorious Christian life, but that doesn't mean he doesn't have eternal life. There can be someone who doesn't have the peace that comes with salvation, that doesn't have abundant life, but that doesn't mean they don't have eternal life. But why would someone just settle for eternal life when God wants to give you immeasurably more? Why would someone just settle for one day I'll go to heaven when God says, I can, I can let you live a life where his kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven right now? And maybe this story just means a whole lot more to me because I just keep thinking about my dad and it's just helped me understand that my dad took the progressive steps but he has stalled out and God is saying I'm not done with him yet and I'm praying that, that, that he'll come to the knowledge that, that God is God whether he performs the miracle or not and it's good when you're beginning to really need to see the works but you got to grow beyond that where you just trust him at his word no matter what. Amen? And so can I just get you wherever you are just to bow your heads with me? And can I just say that there are about three handles here today? The primary one being that maybe you've been in progressions of faith. Maybe you've seen his handiwork. Maybe you even trust him at his word, but you've never crossed the threshold of believing he is the word. You've never really received him. And, and maybe at whatever campus you're in, you realize that God has brought you here today to bring you through the different stages to a place of surrender. Saving faith. Not just believing that he's God, but saying, I want you to be my God. And if that's you, it might be that God before the foundation of the earth had ordained this moment as your homecoming. Come home. Don't just treat him like a vending machine or don't just treat him like someone who has a work to do for you and he's only available whenever you need something from him. But just say, you're God. I, I give you the keys to it all. Be the landlord of everything that I am. I don't want you just to come in and fix things once in a while. I, I, I want to give you complete ownership of who I am, everything I am. If you've never done that, it might be that today God is calling you to that. Here in just a second, you're going to get an opportunity to respond in a card. And why would you settle for less than to say, today I'm crossing the threshold of faith. Today in the progressions of faith, I see God bringing me to a place where I say, I believe that he is the word. And I want to receive him as savior of my life. But maybe today, this is not about salvation for you, not about saving faith for you, but sustaining faith for you. And where you are in your walk has been a regression of faith. You look and you remember the hour you first believed. You remember the time when God called you home, but now it feels like you're taking a lot more steps backward than forward. And you've caught yourself thinking about all the circumstances and blaming the very one who sustained you through them. Maybe God today is just bringing you back and saying, come home. Or maybe today it's just been really just a reminder of someone you've been burdened for. 
And so just, I'm going to pray, and I'm going to ask all of us just to, in all of our campuses, just to stand if we could. Let's just stand if we could, just where we are. And I'm going to ask our campus pastors to come, some of our leadership to come to the front. And, um, and when I pray in all of our different campuses, if, if you need to come and say, man, I think today I'm crossing the threshold of faith to come to Christ, or today I'm a Christian, but I feel like I've been taking regressive steps back. And I want to have abundant life. I don't want to just, set, I just want to not settle for just saving faith, but I want to have sustaining faith. I want to have growing faith. Or maybe you're just really burdened for someone and you just want to come on their behalf and pray. I want to open up the altar at the end of the, the prayer here in all of our different campuses. Lord Jesus, we thank you that John tells the story of a nobleman's son knowing, breaking the fourth wall here, that we would hear it this morning so that we too would believe that Jesus is who he says he is. Not just saving Savior, but sustaining Savior. And I pray that if there's anyone here today that can hear me, that God, you brought to this moment and you see the tiny baby steps in, that today was, is the moment where they would cross the threshold and say, I'm all in. I, I believe him. That If that's the moment, that today you would call them home. If someone here is... Um, Lately, it feels like they've been taking more steps back than forward in their faith. I pray that today they would be awakened to that. And, and maybe the first step of homecoming for them would be that they'd hit the altar and come to the front and say, I just want to pray and mark this moment down as um, I'm turning back around. If there's someone here who's just really burdened for someone they know, like my dad with me, I, I pray that today they would stand in the gap for them. And so we pray this in your name.